Well, most of you know the name Lance Armstrong, right? From 1999 to 2005, after battling and, and defeating a bout with cancer, Armstrong won the Tour de France title seven consecutive times. He was considered by many uh, to be the greatest cycler to ever, ever live. But in 2012, all that changed. When Armstrong was investigated for using performance-enhancing drugs throughout his career, and he was eventually stripped of all seven of his Tour de France titles. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear his story and you think, how could anyone do that, right? I mean, you think, how could anyone do that seven times over the course of seven years, just continually uh, and blatantly take credit for something they didn't deserve? Well, the truth is, the same reason he took credit for something he didn't deserve for seven years is the same reason why you and I take credit for things we don't deserve in our own lives. And it's the sin of self-exaltation. We tend to exalt self. There is something in each of us that wants to promote ourselves, that, uh, that wants others to think highly of us. And it takes different forms in various people, but, but the goal is always the same. We want to be great. We want to be special. We want to feel significant. And we want others to think we are significant. So just last week, I'm uh, driving in the minivan. My wife drives the minivan typically, but I took it to run some errands. And, and I'm out riding around and, and running a couple errands. And I've noticed that her, her, the, the gas is low, and, and it needs some gas. It's a little, a little less than a quarter of a tank. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a good husband, and I'm going to take and fill my wife's van up with gas. And so I fill, I fill it up with gas, and I get back in, and I'm headed home. And I'm thinking the whole way home, Aren't I a wonderful husband? I mean, th- this is what's going through my mind. I'm thinking to myself, I'm such a good guy that I would take the time to stop and fill up my wife's gas tank, how special I am. And so, but then I'm convicted on the way home and I'm thinking, okay, don't say anything to her. This is not a big deal. Kevin, this is what you're supposed to do. This is not something to be proud over. And so I get home, I walk in the door and it's not 15 minutes in. I've been home for 15 minutes and I just can't hold it in. It's like bubbling up and it comes out of my mouth and I say, honey, uh, by the way, I filled up the gas in the, in the van for you. What was her response? Thanks. Thanks? What do you mean, thanks? Like, don't I deserve something more than that, that I was thoughtful enough to do that for you? Can anybody relate? Raise your hand if you can relate to this struggle. Yes, don't we struggle? I, I, I just confess. I think this is primarily a husband problem. I see a, uh, a wife kissing her husband right now, consoling him, because he struggles with this same thing in his life. But like, so I, I'll do this all the time. Here's, I'll, I'll do it when I'm, um, I'll do the, my life, wife will do the laundry and then the laundry will be on the bed. And so it's inevitable, right? Who folds the laundry? And so I start folding the laundry and here's, I, I will do this. I, I just confessing it. I, I wish she was here to hear this. Uh, I will, I will literally, because I want her to see that I'm confessing it, um, <laughs> is that I will leave a stack, one stack of clothes out so that she knows I folded all the clothes. Right? Or I'll pull this one. I'll do this. I'll go, I'll, I'll fold everything, put everything away, but there'll be one item that I'll legitimately not know where it goes. And instead of just trying to figure it out on my own, I'll go, hey, honey, uh, where, uh, where does this go? Because I've been folding all the clothes. Like, I, it's just this unbelievable desire in me to let my wife know that I'm a special guy. Right? I mean, whenever we do something good, whether it's at home or whether it's at work or whether it's at school, we want, we want someone to notice when we do things good because we want to make sure that we get the credit that we think we deserve. And really, it comes from a, a very God-given desire to be significant. We all have a desire to be significant, and God gave us that. He designed us for that. But the truth is, we are designed and created to find our significance in Him. 
and in our relationship with him, with him and, and who we are uh, as his sons and as his daughters. But unfortunately, we so often fail to the temptation of pursuing greatness on our own. I read in a book this past week, uh, it gave three basic ways that Satan tempts us to find our significance in something other than our relationship with God. It's the same three ways that he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Temptation, temptation number one was this, I am what I do. My significance comes from my performance. Our culture is constantly asking us the question, what have you achieved? And so we, when we achieve something, we're tempted to exalt ourselves. We want someone to notice that we've achieved something. Temptation number two is, I am what I have. And so my significance comes from my possessions. And here we look at the things we've acquired and we find some sense of worth in the house we live in or the car we drive or the clothes we wear. And if we've acquired some nice things, we're tempted to exalt ourselves and to take some kind of credit or some some sense of attention, uh, find some kind of personal value in those things we've acquired. Temptation number three is that I am what others think about me. My significance comes from popularity. If others think highly of me, then I'm somehow special, significant, and good. Our self-image will soar with a compliment, but we're devastated by a criticism. And so these are three basic areas where we are just, we're just tempted to exalt ourselves and to bring attention to ourselves or to find uh, a value in ourselves. Well, Jesus, while he was here on earth, he never exalted himself. He always exalted his heavenly Father. You know, we're in week six of our series, The Son of Man Walking as Jesus Walked. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 5. There are several Bibles on the floor, floor around you. Feel free to grab one of those. Turn to John chapter 5. You know, the vision for this series is coming from a passage in 1 John 2, 6. It says this, that this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We must walk as Jesus did. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at ways, practical ways that you and I can walk as Jesus walked. To walk as Jesus walked means to pattern our life after his life. That means that the priorities of Jesus can be our priorities. And that the resources available to him are the same resources available to you and I today. And we've been working through this acronym, uh, HS Power. HS stands for the Holy Spirit. We can live by the Holy Spirit. P stands for prayer. We can pray like Jesus prayed. O stands for obedience. We can obey like Jesus obeyed. Last week we talked about Jesus, how Jesus depended on the word of God to live his life. And that we must depend on the word of God to live our lives as well. And this morning we're going to talk about that E, exalting the Father. Jesus always and only exalted his Father. He knew that everything good in his life came from the Father. And that's what exalting the Father is all about. If you're taking notes, exalting the Father is all about acknowledging God as the source of everything good in our lives. Let's look at a handful of passages so that we can see this pattern of exalting the Father in Jesus' life. If you've got John 5 open, we're going to look at verse 19. John 5, 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I find this fascinating. Jesus says he does nothing by himself. I've always been amazed that Jesus, the Son of God, says he can do nothing by himself, that he depends on his Father for everything. Jesus is acknowledging his Father as the source of everything good in his life. Wouldn't you love to say confidently someday, like Jesus, 
I do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my heavenly Father doing. What a great goal that that can be for you and I. Well, let's look at another example of Jesus saying uh, everything good comes from the Father. Verse 30. We're going to stay in chapter 5, John 5, verse 30. Here Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Again, Jesus says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. He says, I judge as God tells me. My father is the source of my good judgment, Jesus says. I'm not carrying out my own judgment, but his. Because I'm not trying to do uh, my will or to please myself, Jesus says. I'm here to do his will and to please him. Can you hear in Jesus just this heart that exalts his heavenly father? I think the goal of his life, the goal of Jesus' life, the primary motivation, if you will, of his life was to please his heavenly father. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, the Apostle Paul tells us that you and I, too, should make it our goal to please God. That should be one of your goals as a Christ follower, is to please your Heavenly Father. Let's look at another example. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 28. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Here, Jesus is saying, listen, I only say what the Father has taught me to say. He's saying, I can't even take credit for the words I'm speaking or the lessons I'm teaching. Can you believe that? That Jesus doesn't take credit for the amazing teaching that he taught, that he's known for? He says, they're not mine. They're the Father's. He is the source of everything good in my teaching. And I'm just telling you what the Father has taught me, Jesus is saying. And remember, the Father didn't automatically download all of these lessons and all of these words that Jesus spoke. No, Jesus had to study the Word of God on his own, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He, he had to pray. He had to follow the Holy Spirit. That Jesus always exalted the Father in, in everything good, including his teaching. Let's look at another example. John ten thirty two. John 10, verse 32. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Where did Jesus' Jesus' works come from based on that passage? Look at that passage. Who does he give credit to? It's from the Father. Jesus never took credit for the good works he performed. Can you think about that for a minute? You think about all the people that Jesus ministered to and the people that he healed. How easy would it have been for Jesus to take credit for all of those things? But he doesn't. How easy would it have been for Jesus to take a little bit of glory for himself? He takes none. He doesn't do that. He acknowledges his Father as the source of all the good works he performed. And do you see all, do you, let me ask you something. Do you see all of the good works that you've accomplished in your life, whether it's in your home or in your workplace or at school, wherever it is, that, that the good things that you've accomplished is not because of your greatness, but because of God's goodness? That he's given you gifts, he's given you health, he allowed you to be born in America, he has opened doors of opportunity, he's placed people in your life, he has been good to you. When you begin to think about all the areas of your life where you can't take any credit, you begin to see that God really does deserve all the credit for everything. Let's look at another example of Jesus uh, exalting his father. John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own. But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. 
That's amazing. You see, that just Jesus is giving credit to the Father for everything in his life, even the words he speaks. He says, the commands I give, they're not mine. I can't take credit for those. They are my Father's. I'm just giving you the commands he gave me. Don't imp- Here's what Jesus said. Don't be impressed with me because of my teaching. My teaching and my commands are from my Father. Let's look at another. Last one. John 15, 15. Jesus says this. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Here, Jesus is nearing the end of his life. It's the last night he's with his disciples before he is arrested. And he reiterates with them one more time. Everything I taught you, everything I learned, I learned from my Father. He was the source of everything good that you saw in me over the last several years. Do the people in your life... Do the people in your life know that, that all of the good things in your life, that you give credit and glory to God for all those good things? I hope, I hope, that, I hope that's our goal. I know that's certainly my goal. As you tell earlier, I've got a long way to go. Why is it important for Jesus to teach his disciples that God was a source of everything good in his life? It's because he wanted them to know for, that they could, they, could, they could walk as he walked. That if God is the source of everything good in Jesus' life, then he's the source of everything good in our life, and that we can walk as he walked. That we can pattern our life after his life. And if we're going to pattern our life after him, after Jesus, then we've got to exalt the Father like Jesus did. But the key question I want us to wrestle with the rest of the morning here is this. How? How was Jesus able to do that? Was it because he was God? Is that, because, is that why he was able to always exalt the Father? I don't think so. I think the secret is found in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Jesus, in your relationships with one another, had uh, had the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So here's what he says. Basically, Paul's saying, hey, walk as Jesus walked. And then he says, who, being in very nature God, let's just pause right there. Jesus was fully God. He was God. There's no doubt about it. Jesus was God. He was fully God. But while he was fully God, look at the next verse. It says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That is to say that in his humanity, Jesus never played the God card. That he didn't use the God nature to his own advantage. Paul said, uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, theologian Charles Ryrie says it this way. He says, never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life never more than man. Rather than playing the God card and exalt himself as God, look at what Jesus does. He says, uh, rather, uh, he makes himself nothing. Look at that phrase. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Look at the next verse. It says in verse 8, uh, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I want to highlight two phrases in that passage. The first one was, he made himself nothing. And the second one is right here. It says, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. I think that's the first and the key step when it comes to exalting the Father like Jesus did. When it comes to us giving God credit and glory in our lives, I think this is the first thing we must do. In order to exalt the Father, we must humble ourselves. In order to exalt the Father, we must humble ourselves. You know, Jesus tried really hard to teach uh, uh, this lesson to his 12 disciples towards the end of his ministry. During the last few months of Jesus' ministry, his disciples got in three arguments. 
We have three recorded arguments. It was actually the last three months as they're making their way uh, to Jerusalem, their final journey. Three different arguments break out among the 12, and each argument is about who is the greatest among them. They are maneuvering for position. Each of them are striving for some honor with Jesus. They're trying to exalt themselves, and each time Jesus teaches them that they must humble themselves. We're going to look at three of those arguments and see what lessons we can learn. In the first instance, Jesus has spent time alone with Peter, uh, James, and John. And when they return, the other nine disciples are arguing. And uh, Jesus walks in on on this argument, and he asks them, hey, what are you arguing about? And none of them answer. None of them say a word. It says they're silent. They remain silent because they didn't didn't want Jesus to know that they were arguing about who would be greatest among them. They knew Jesus wouldn't be happy about this. But Jesus calls them together and he rebukes them. And in Mark 9, 35, here's what Jesus says to them in response to their argument. He says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus takes it a step further and he illustrates his point by bringing a child and he sits the child on his lap. And with the child sitting on his lap, with his disciples sitting in front of them, trying to teach them to humble themselves, here's what he says in Matthew 18. It says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's Jesus saying? Well, in order to understand what he's saying here, we have to understand that the difference between their culture and ours. In our culture today, children are often uh, admired for their innocence and their purity, right? And we often celebrate the innocence of children. But that's a modern idea. That was not true in Jesus' culture. A child in Jesus' culture was at the bottom of the pecking order. He or she was the lowest of the low, a perfect example of weakness and need. And so when Jesus says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he's saying the person in the lowest place, the person who humbles themselves, is the greatest. When you and I exalt ourselves... Uh, the disciples, we, we do what the disciples were doing here. We seek power and control, status and influence. We tend to seek that. And when you humble yourself, you willingly give up your power and you give up your control. And humbling yourself means you make yourself vulnerable and helpless like a child, Jesus says. You take a lowly position. Let's look at the second argument. The second argument breaks out among the disciples. Happens when the two, when two of the disciples, James and his brother John, they use their mother to try and get top jobs in Jesus' kingdom. This, sounds, this is going to sound like a soap opera. Uh, in Matthew twenty twenty, it says that the mother of James and John comes to Jesus with her sons in tow. Okay, Mom brings two of the disciples to Jesus. It says, the text says, she gets down on her knees and asked Jesus to give her son the two highest positions in the kingdom. This really happened. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. And he gently and kindly declines her request. But the other ten disciples, they hear about this. And the text says that they were indignant with the two brothers. The other ten are furious and angry that these two guys would pull the mom card to try to get them a, a, a higher position than everybody else. Well, again, they're arguing, and Jesus finds them arguing, and he again calls them together for another lesson. And here's what he says in Matthew 20. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the, they keep seeking greatness, and Jesus keeps saying, humble yourself. Author Paul Miller, in his book, Love Walked Among Us, says, Jesus calls the disciples together here and tells them that their whole approach to life is wrong. Right? They, he has to keep giving them this lesson because they're just not getting it. He's inviting the disciples to a life of compassion and service instead of a life of love. I mean, instead of a, a pursuit of power and fame. Miller says, we try to gain life through power. But Jesus loses his life because of love. Well, the third time the disciples argue over who's the greatest is at their final meal together. They're still struggling to get this lesson, and they're at the Last Supper. And once again, Jesus is going to teach them to humble themselves. In the text, in Luke 22, it says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The third time they get an argument over who's the greatest in the last few months. We don't know for sure about what the particular context was, but we get some idea that it was something about the seating order around the table. These guys are like a bunch of middle schoolers fighting for the best seat uh, next to Jesus. And Jesus asked a question in Luke 22. Look at this. For who is greater? Jesus asked them. The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So they're fighting over who should sit where. And because where you sat meant something about your position, meant something about your significance. And they're fighting over that. And Jesus steps back and says, listen, don't even worry about where you're sitting. Which is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? And then he goes on to say, I'm telling you, I'm the one who's come to serve. And once again, he's going to illustrate his point. And he's going to get up from the table. And he's going to go to the door. And he's going to grab a basin, uh, grabs a jar of water, and he pours it into a basin, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he proceeds to wash and dry the feet of each of his disciples. See, because in this culture, the servant was the lowest on the totem pole, and the servant is the one who washed the feet of the guest. And Jesus models the way for them, telling them, you must humble yourself and take the lower place. Several months ago, my girls were eating uh, dinner at the dinner table. And so one of them uh, at the time was three, and the other one was two, and three and a half and two. And, uh, and they were sitting there, and, and my daughter, I think it was my daughter, Selah, uh, knocked over her cup full of milk and just spilled all over the place, right? And uh, all over the table, and then dri- it's like dripping all on the floor. And so I'm trying to be gracious, and we go, it's okay, it's okay, honey, it's okay, no big deal. And, and, uh, and, uh, and I say, I'll clean it up, and, you know, no sense crying over spilled milk. And, um, and so I get down on my knees, and I literally get down on my hands and knees, and I start to clean up the milk. And I'm under the table cleaning up the milk. And I listen to my daughters talking over the table they have no idea that I'm underneath the table cleaning up their mess. And they're having fun, and they're not noticing or paying attention to me at all. And I'm cleaning up the milk, just kind of, just be honest, a little bit annoyed, right? <laughs> and I'm underneath the table, and it's as if the Lord came to me and said, Kevin, this is where I live. I live down here in the low place. And it's, it's, it's going to be true of us is if we want to meet God, if we want to experience God the way he's designed us to experience him, we must take the lower place. God lives in the lower place. Humbling yourself means taking the lower place. You, you can often see this anytime you get into an argument with someone. When you find yourself trying to win an argument, 
Where you're trying to, you ever find yourself trying to prove to someone that you're right? Anybody, anybody struggle with this? When you're trying to get the last word, you know what you're doing? You're exalting yourself. We want to come out on top. And humbling yourself, taking the lower place, means you give up your pursuit of proving you're right and you stop trying to come out ahead. A great example of someone who humbled themselves and exalted Jesus was John the Baptist. He did a great job of this. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was a prophet, and he was the leader of God's movement before Jesus arrived. Now, he had lots of followers. Uh, one friend of mine, who, a pastor and, and longtime teacher, said that, Jesus, uh, that John was the Billy Graham of his day. And that God used his ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. In fact, many of Jesus' first and earlier followers were followers of John uh, first. And so when John really just prepared the way for Jesus, John initiated and was leading the movement. And when Jesus arrives, there's this transition of leadership from John to Jesus. And in the middle of that transition, John's heart was tested. Look at John chapter 3 with me. It says this. After, after this, his, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. And John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put into prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Hey, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And so there's this challenge in this moment. John has had this successful ministry, has had many followers. He's been the leader. And there's this transitioning happening. And people are beginning to follow Jesus and not John. And how does John reply? He says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. John says, I can't take credit for my ministry. God's the one who gave me my ministry. He says in verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Listen, John would have certainly realized the honor and the significance and the privilege it was to be in his role, the leader of this movement. But when his disciples complain that people are beginning to follow Jesus instead of him, John doesn't exalt himself. He humbles himself. John takes the lower place. He asks, who am I? I can't take credit for the message I brought. That message was given to me from God from heaven. I can't take credit for my followers. They are given to me by God. He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one you should be focused on. It's not about me. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. And that should be the priority of our life, is that Jesus should increase and we should decrease. And so the next time you find yourself tempted to exalt yourself, say, I must decrease. He must increase. Say it with me. I must decrease, he must increase. Listen, uh, one of the uh, practical ways you can cultivate this attitude is through prayer. Uh, I I, I find one of the most uh, simple ways to cultivate an attitude where I want to decrease and I want Jesus to increase is when I begin to sit down and write out all the ways I see God working my life. And I write out my story, and I start with my testimony about how God brought me into a relationship with him at uh, 14, 15 years ago. And I start with how, even before that, my, uh, God had been working in my father's life and in my mother's life, and how he orchestrated their lives. And, and I just walk through my whole life, and, and I just start writing down all the different ways that God has worked in my life. 
and blessed me and taken care of me. And even in this season of life, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll write in this season of life. I'll, I'll make a list of maybe the top 10 ways I see God working in this season of life. And every time I make that list, you know what inevitably happens at the end of it? I think, oh, you are so good. You are so good. I exalt you. You get all the credit. You get all the glory. Oftentimes I end up saying, Lord, have mercy on me forever, ever thinking that I deserve any of the credit or glory for my life. You deserve all the credit. Why don't you try that? If you've never tried that before, go home today. Try this this week. Sit down and in prayer, make a list of all the ways God has been good to you. And when you see that list, the practical ways, it begins to cultivate in you a heart that says, he must increase and I must decrease. We're going to have that prayer workshop this coming Saturday. I'm going to be hosting at the Noblesville campus. I'd love for you to come. This will be one of the areas where we talk about practicing in our prayer lives is how do we recognize that God is the source of all good things? How do we cultivate that heart? Well, here's the thing we can trust is that when you do humble yourself and exalt God, you can hold on to this promise from Jesus in Luke 14. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, uh, although they cannot repay you, you will be... Wait, that's not the right verse. Never mind. Is it, is, is it second half? Second half of 14. Go to the second half. No? Okay. Here's what he says in one verse somewhere in the scriptures. <laughs> Jesus says... That was my fault. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus, I'm trying to find a way to take credit and throw, give the blame to you. Um, <laughs> But that would not be taking the lower position. Okay, Jesus says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says, if you'll humble yourself, I will exalt you. See, when we humble ourselves, we create a vacuum in our lives. And and it's a vacuum, though, that God can step in and fill. And rather than trying to manage and control the things on our own, waiting for God is the hard part, waiting for Him to step in. And it's hard because when we humble ourselves in that vacuum, it's a lonely place. We have to believe that God will take care of us when others don't. And so if you lower yourself, trust that God will meet you there. Because trusting God's love and faithfulness is what frees us to humble ourselves. Jesus humbled himself because he trusted God's love and faithfulness. And let's look back at that passage in Philippians 2 again. And this time we're going to look at, start with verse 1. We're going to look at the whole context of Philippians 2. We're going to close by looking at this passage. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if any of you, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and in mind. He's saying, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to walk like Jesus, then do what Jesus did. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says, don't ever exalt yourself, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Walk as Jesus walked, who, being in very nature with God, uh, very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Here's the second half of this passage I want you to focus on. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Boy, that's the lowest position 
That's the lowest position anybody could ever take. I think the lowest position mankind has ever been in is when Jesus was on the cross. But look what happened. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that when Jesus commands us to do things, we can always know that he's always modeled the way. And so when we say, let's not exalt ourselves, let's humble ourselves and exalt our Heavenly Father, let's acknowledge God as a source of everything good in our life, we can know with confidence that Jesus himself did that. And he humbled himself all the way to the cross. And maybe this morning you've never acknowledged, as that passage says in Philippians, you've ever acknowledged with your mouth and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you'd like to do that? I'd love to talk with you about your relationship with the Lord. I'd love to give you an opportunity to actually do that. I'd love to pray with you and pray for you after the service. You just come over and meet me down front after service ends. But let's stand as we close. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us be a people? Help us be a people who humble ourselves and exalt you. God, open our eyes and our hearts to all the good things you've done in our life. Help us to give you all the credit and glory and the honor. Jesus, we exalt you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.